This is my New Year's resolution. When my mother-in-law begins to yell and shout, through the window I would like to throw her out. But I resolve not to do it, here is why. I'm afraid of hitting someone passing by. This is my New Year's resolution. When I'm at the movies watching a love scene, and the lady's hat is blocking half the screen, I resolve not to shout, take off that hat. I'll remove it gently with a baseball bat. This is my Another New Year's year over. And the first complete year of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. Welcome to episode number 27, folks. And thank you for uh, deciding to listen. This episode is going to focus on Worm, a homebrew by Mark Ball. I'm actually recording this entire episode on December 18th, 2017. Uh, Why am I recording this so early? Well, because I just realized I don't know if I'm going to really have time to step away and do the podcast (laughs) in time for December 30th if I don't do it now. So I figured, hey, why not? So a lot of this recording is, uh, how do we say, tentative. And I got some really nice comments on uh, episode 26, the... uh, Santa Simon slash Christmas episode. I wasn't sure how that was going to go over, but uh, I got some really kind feedback. So thank you. Thank you, folks. It really means the world to me. Actually, it means the world to me, good or bad, what kind of that you even send feedback at all. But uh, going on, I just want to update a couple of things. First of all, in episode 26, I mentioned how the DVD version of Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas doesn't have the Kermit the Frog scenes. And those of you who didn't hear that episode, uh, I'll try to be as quick as possible. If I'm not mistaken, the story is that Jim Henson's company sold the Muppets to Disney. So the Muppets are now technically a Disney property. However, the DVD that was available for a long time was put out by Jim Henson's company. Jim Henson's company still owned the rights to Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas as the characters were not part of the Muppets family, except for Kermit the Frog. And since Kermit the Frog was owned by Disney, Kermit's scenes had to be edited out. However, and I actually knew about this when the episode was released, but I didn't want to go back and have to re-record this after I found out. In fact, I thank Bill from the Atari Bytes podcast for uh, pointing this out to me. There is a 40th anniversary Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas DVD that is fully restored with Kermit the Frog scenes intact. And I got so excited when I heard about that. And I kind of hinted to my wife that it might be a nice Christmas present. So I I was so excited to hear about that. Bringing things back a little bit on topic, there's some news. There was some more Alpha Race cartridges made available via Good Deal Games. Uh, It's a little bit more pricey than what the Atari Age Store sells cartridges for. But to me, I think the price was worth it. I think the price is in the 30s or something off the top of my head. But I love Alpha Race. It's a really, I th- I like it better than the original Omega Race, to be quite honest. So glad to hear that that was back in, uh, that that's available again. But anyway, yeah, we're, uh, depending on if I get this episode out on time, um, this is either right before New Year's or right after New Year's. Uh, I don't know about you folks, but I'm not really huge on New Year's resolutions. I don't really make them that much. Uh, 2016, I had one resolution, and that was to buy at least one homebrew every month, and I did. I, um, I I might not have like done it every calendar month, but I more than averaged one homebrew per month in 2016, both 7,800 and 2,600. I bought some through the Atari Age store. I bought one or two through Good Deal Games. I might have bought one or two directly from a developer or two. And I know that I bought two from pack rat games at Midwest gaming classic as I did last year as well. I had one new year's resolution in 2017 and one goal. And I'll talk about those. My new year's resolution for 2017 was to avoid Neil diamond. I mean, I'm sorry. I just can't stand Neil diamond. I'm sick of him. I really, really am sick of Neil diamond songs. My wife even said to me, she said, even, even red, red wine by UB 40. I said, yep, that's a Neil diamond song. Don't want to listen to it. Cause I was just so sick of it. I was just so sick of hearing Neil diamond songs. In fact, I'll tell you how faithful I was to my new year's resolution. 
near where I work, there's a pizza joint where you can go in, you can get a personal size pizza for dirt cheap. I go there for my lunch break once in a while. And one time when I was there, you know how in some cable systems they have channels that are nothing but music. Like if you just want to have like constant background music, you just pipe it in through your cable. Well, they had uh, one of those uh, music channels on their cable system and the TV just showed uh, you know, a picture of the performer and some history of the song, history of the performer. I actually had to cut my break short once in that pizza place when the cable channel played I'm a Believer. I actually got up and left. I had to. I had to. Well, I remember what was really interesting, though, was right before that, that station was playing a song by Paul Revere and the Raiders. I think it was Hungry. And there was a table of teenagers, four teenagers. It couldn't have been older than 17. They were singing along to it. I was like, are you kidding me? You're 17 years old and you know Hungry? Jeez, I'm 43 and I'm too young to know that. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, they played I'm a Believer, so I actually got up and left. I, I stick to my New Year's resolutions, boy, howdy. My goal for 2017 was to ride my bike for at least 1,500 miles. Uh, the previous year, I wanted to do 1,000, and I made it to 1,200. I figured I should be able to make 1,500 if I really stick with it. It's easy enough for me if I bike to work. Because there are two different ways I take to work. Where I live in Chicago, I live right off of Clark Street, which is a major north-south road. And it's pretty bike-friendly, despite it being very busy. And if I take Clark Street, that's about um, seven miles to get to my job downtown. And there's also a bike trail, a bike-slash-pedestrian trail that goes between Lake Michigan and Lakeshore Drive and follows the curve there. It's called the Lakefront Trail. And if I take that, it's a little bit over nine miles. So I could easily get 18 miles a day just by riding my bike to work. And I did that as much as I possibly could. And I actually did come in at almost 1,600 miles. And there were a couple of instances that basically precluded me from riding my bike. Like when I threw my back out at, uh, on Halloween, like that, that was not good. I had to stay off my bike for a couple of weeks while I recovered. So, uh, I probably would have made it closer to maybe 1700 if it hadn't been for that. But, uh, I was happy to do that. In fact, I think I'm going to declare that right now, 2018, I'm going to try for 1700 miles on my bike, get myself some more exercise, other than that, I don't really know what I want to do. I'm not going to make any resolutions for 2018. I might not be as anti-Neil Diamond as I was in 2017. But um, I know one thing for sure that I'm going to try to do is, I mentioned before, the room where I record this podcast. It's basically kind of a combination home office slash recording studio slash music room. And it's not a big room, but it is a mess. It is a wreck. I think it was Richard grounds. Once when I was in an online conversation, uh, it was when Ferg and, uh, Ferg and Sarah were live streaming video Olympics during the extra life marathon. And I think Ferg was apologizing for the shape of his, uh, video game space or whatever. And I was like, dude, you have not seen mine. Richard's and uh, Richard grounds chimed in and said, yeah, you should see Sean's. I've seen it on the stream. Uh, Richard, if you're listening, you saw nothing. Trust me. Uh, you think what you saw was bad. Oh my God. If you saw the rest of this room, you would have a heart attack. <laughs> but uh, my goal is to get this thing in some good shape because man, I really need to, to record some music and stuff. And, it's really hard to do that when there are piles of stuff all over the place that you have to step over. It's just not fun. It's just not fun. I gotta, I, I, I gotta get this thing going. I, I, and also I think one thing that'll help, I have boxes of audio cassettes and stacks of videotapes that I need to transfer digitally. And I need to keep, I need to resume doing that. I was doing pretty well for a while. And then for a couple of years, nothing. So I need to start doing that again. That'll clear up some space, you know, just, transfer my audio tapes, transfer my video tapes and get rid of them. So see how that goes. Christmas. Well, Christmas was nice. Uh, by the way, um, yeah, I said that I 
that I'm recording this on December 18th. Um, so, um, I, what I'm doing is recording every conceivable thing that could have happened on Christmas. And then I'm going to edit out the things that didn't happen. At least I hope I edited it out, man. That, if I left it all in, wouldn't that be embarrassing? Can't imagine I'd do that though. But, uh, anyway, but yeah, Christmas was pretty cool. As usual, uh, my wife and I and uh, my wife's mother, we went down to uh, Crest Hill, Illinois, where my parents live. And so it was uh, my my parents, my brother, my brother's wife, and uh, my brother's wife's sister who lives with them. Um, so it was a usual family gathering. We walked in, and uh, my dad had golf on the TV, as usual. Had a nice dinner, very nice dinner. My mother had it brought in. She didn't cook this time, which I think is a good idea. It's like, man, you don't want to do work on Christmas. Got a very generous cash in, I guess, for Christmas. <laughs> got some really nice presents. And um, just like I kind of figured, we got got a nice little cash envelope from the parents as well that um, I'm going to use. Uh, I'm going to put... I've, Something that I told my family, I told everybody in my family for, for me this Christmas, usually there's a gift card that I want because I'm trying to save up for something. Like two years ago, I needed to get a new uh, MacBook. So I told everybody, get me Apple store cards. So I like for my birthday and for Christmas and for probably the previous Christmas, I collected Apple store cards and put a little bit of money aside here and there to cover the cost of it. And then course put the rest on financing which i had 24 months to pay off i love all right yeah people always say oh go local shop local which believe me i totally do like i, I mentioned before how my wife and i got a brand new turntable we bought that from a local mom and pop store in the neighborhood but for things like say like my imac and my macbook i went to best buy for my imac i went to the apple store for my macbook why because of interest-free financing. Mom and pop stores usually don't have that. When I got my dream guitar, the Rickenbacker, that I wanted for 30 years almost, I got that at Guitar Center used because of no way am I paying that, that new price for that. But I, even at the pretty fair price I got for that, I went to Guitar Center for that. Why? Interest-free financing. I could pay a little bit at a time. So other than that, believe me, I'm a big, big, big believer in mom and pop businesses. But yeah, I told everybody, get me iTunes gift cards. Why? Because like I said before, I like to record. I record this podcast using GarageBand. I record music using GarageBand. And GarageBand is nice, but uh, there are some things that it doesn't let me do. But it's bigger brother Logic Pro would let me do. And it has all kinds of much better features too. So I wanted to upgrade to Logic Pro and that costs money. So I told everybody, Hey, get me iTunes gift cards. So yeah, I got, uh, I got a good buildup of iTunes gift cards and, uh, I can use, uh, cash that my parents, my, my parents always give us cash. I mentioned that before, like they'll give us presents, but they'll also give us cash and I'm going to use uh, that cash to, uh, subsidize my Logic Pro purpose and, uh, in fact, I just might do that after this podcast gets released. So, yay. Um, and let's see, what else happened? Um, okay, here's one possibility that might happen. Oh, there was this really brutal accident on I-55, though, when we were heading down. There was a, a semi that overturned, and there were, it, there were some, like, meat parts that were scattered all over the highway, so that put a significant delay. We didn't get down there until late. Okay, so that's one possibility. Here's another possibility that might have happened on Christmas. Man, I don't know what's up with my parents, though. They were cheap this year. They didn't get me squat. They gave my wife all the good stuff. So, I don't know. Okay, that's one possibility. Uh, let's see, what's another possibility that I might have to include here? Please, Sean, don't forget to edit this out. Don't forget to edit as necessary. And sometimes my mother likes to get me gadgets because, I mean, yeah, I do like gadgets from time to time, but she comes up with these weird gadgets that she finds in her travels and thinks, oh, you know what? Sean would like that. So what I got this year was a combination potato peeler, radio, dog leash from a company called Westminster. And she connected Westminster with the Westminster Kennel Club, but of course it's a different Westminster and, uh, 
it's one of those really thin dog leashes that'll break really easily. So I'm not really um, comfortable using that on uh, on our dog, uh, especially because she's a beagle. And if she sees a rabbit, she's going to take off. And then I want a good, strong leash to prevent her from basically like running away with that rabbit. <laughs> but uh, Okay, so that was one possibility. Uh, don't forget to edit that out if that didn't actually happen. But there was something wrong with the Christmas dinner. We all got food poisoning. It was pretty nasty. And uh, I was hoping just once I could have time off work that didn't involve being sick. I was sick during our summer trip, so that was kind of nasty. Okay, so uh, all right, I think that's pretty much all the possibilities that um, could have happened. Uh, again, Sean, don't forget to edit out what did not happen. You don't want to embarrass yourself. You don't want all your listeners to hear all these possibilities that didn't happen. Don't forget to edit. So resume podcast now. Oh, also for Christmas this year as a Christmas present, I got from my friend and Pie Factory podcast co-host Jimmy G. Jimmy G sent me an NES controller that was, I don't, I don't know the whole story about this. I don't know if this was an any, an actual NES controller that was hacked into working for the 7,800. Um, it's, it looks very much like that's exactly what it is. I don't know if it's that or if it's a custom controller for the 7800 that was meant to look like an NES controller. It has an Atari sticker on the back. Of th um, according to Jimmy G, this was from Drath on Atari Age. Uh, I don't know if he meant Drath or Darth. I don't remember. It might have been uh, juxtaposed in the uh, in the message I got from him. But uh, this is this is really cool. Um, and uh, just want to publicly thank Jimmy G. A very generous thank you so much for. Uh, for that. Uh, that was very kind. I did get Jimmy G something for Christmas as well. For those of you who don't listen to pie factory podcast one day when, uh, Jim was, uh, going through the list of main ROMs, trying to see what games are out there. He came across one called tinkle pit. And of course, because we both have the maturity level of a fourth grader, we latched onto that title right away, and we recorded an episode, actually, that covered uh, Mr. Do and Tinkle Pit. 20 minutes of giggling had to be edited out of that because of the name Tinkle Pit, and that uh, one of the weapons in there is a ball that is colored blue and things like that. And so that's basically our ongoing thing. We are obsessed with the title Tinkle Pit. We, In fact, so much so that we actually had UrbanDictionary.com put in an entry for the phrase tinkle pit. And uh, something that I found out is that UrbanDictionary.com actually has an online shop. You can have a coffee cup made up of any word or phrase that is in Urban Dictionary. So I had one made with tinkle pit on it and uh, decided that was going to be his Christmas present. I thought he would appreciate that, and uh, sure enough, he did. So, <laughs> oh, so basically, that's been uh, my Christmas. Christmas is always kind of a clutter to me lately because my wife has her birthday four days before Christmas. So <laughs> basically, her parents made sure that people did not try to glob Christmas and her birthday in one thing. They're like, everybody deserves a birthday no matter when that's how she was raised. And I don't blame her at all. So I kind of have to do birthday and Christmas shopping at the same time for her, for her birthday. Well, in, uh, the beach boys had an album in 1967 called wild honey. And, uh, it's basically kind of an R and B flavored album. If you've ever heard a beach boy song called Darlin, it, that's what, that's the album that that song is from. It was a pretty popular song and uh, a lot of fans love wild honey. Cause it's a really cool album. It sounds pretty good. And my wife thinks that the best way to listen to wild honey is on vinyl. We have, um, an original mono wild honey on vinyl and we had, and, uh, Wild Honey was never released in stereo back in 1967 when it first came out. Uh, so what Capitol Records did was they put out a mono version of Wild Honey, and they also put out a fake stereo Wild Honey, which means basically the left channel has all bass, the right channel has all treble, and they basically try to make it sound like you're listening to stereo, but in real life you're listening to mono with basically the EQ futzed with in each channel. And it sounds like garbage, quite frankly, we have uh, both mono and the fake stereo versions of wild honey. 
and my wife, again, she says that Wild Honey is best listened to on vinyl. Well, as part of the 50th anniversary of Wild Honey, there was a brand new stereo, a real stereo mix made of that album. And it was put out on CD earlier this year. And um, it was also released on vinyl. And she kind of hinted to me that that would be a great birthday present. So I got that for her. What else did I get her? Well, we didn't really do much for Christmas for each other again, because we just wanted to, uh, uh, I mentioned in last episode that that turntable was basically our Christmas present to ourselves. And we wouldn't really worry about Christmas for each other. But uh, I did get her a few things. One of the things I got was was a, uh, we went to San Diego earlier this year for the first time, specifically the Ocean Beach neighborhood. And that place is awesome, except there's a lot of cigarette smoke all over the place there. And I, I can't handle tobacco smoke at all. But uh, she really loved Ocean Beach. So I got her uh, kind of a... Uh, an ocean beach old timey kind of tourism poster. We have a couple of those in our house. We have a couple of California ones. We have one for Chicago and I thought this would be a great addition. So I ordered one of those for her and uh, I know she's going to love it, but, (laughs) but anyway, that's how my holiday went. That's how my Christmas went. And, um, I do want to catch up on some feedback. I heard from Trek MD about Santa Simon in case you didn't hear the Santa Simon episode, Trek MD in his review of Santa Simon, he complained about the music. He said it was a little bit too high pitched for his ears. He couldn't stand it. And this is what he had to say. He says, Hey Sean, looks like the Santa Simon file I had had an issue. And that's why I said there was an annoying sound at the start. I just downloaded the updated file and now I get the very nice Christmas music that was supposed to be there. Eugenio. (laughs) Okay. Eugenio, I thought maybe that, that it was the music that bothered you. I guess not. I guess I was like, there's nothing wrong with the music, but Hey, everybody has his or her own issues with things. So, but uh, glad to hear that. In fact, I was having an issue too, because I had, uh, I tried to put Santa Simon back on my Mateo's cartridge and I couldn't get it to load past the Atari splash screen. It just jumbled up. And I was wondering if maybe it was a PAL ROM because I have to use NTSC, of course. But uh, I'll have to try that again. I don't know. It might have just been a bad ROM. I tried both the ROM from the original development thread and the, the ROM that was posted later that says, hey, if the other ROM doesn't work on your 7800, try this one. Neither of them did. So I don't know. But uh, again, thanks, you, Henny. I appreciate you uh getting back to us about that. Oh, one bit of gaming news I should share. There's a store in Norwich, Illinois, just on the western border of Chicago, actually. It's called Video Games Then and Now. I don't know if I ever mentioned the place on this podcast before, but it is a home video game store run by Sean Kelly. Some of you may have heard his name. I think he did the Atari 5200 multi-cart. But I know some of you have been to his store either because you live in the Chicago area or because you've gone through the Chicago area and stopped there in your travels. Well, they're actually going to be moving soon. When? I'm not 100% sure. All I know is sometime in January. Right now, as of this recording, they're at 4351 North Harlem Avenue. They're going to be moving five blocks up the road and across the street to 4850 North Harlem Avenue in a, uh, in a plaza that has a subway and they used to have a blockbuster video and they're actually going to be taking up the space that used to be blockbuster video. I actually stopped in just a couple of days before recording this, just to uh, see what they had in stock. I bought a few Atari 2600 games to fill out my collection. And the morning that I'm recording this, They posted on Facebook that they just got a load of Atari 7800 games that they put out on the floor. Man, what timing. Two days after I'm there. Oh, my Lord. They're all in the box, too. Um, Let's see. There are... Let's see. 1, 2, 3, 4, 21, 27. Oh, my Lord. 33 boxed 7800 games, including both Pokey games, Commando and Ball Blazer. There's Mean 18... Uh, Super Huey, Mo- Motorcycle, oh my god, I have a box for Motorcycle, but I don't actually have a Motorcycle car, unfortunately I'm not going to be able to get out there, these are probably going to be all swept up by the time I get a chance to get out there, uh, Fatal Run, 
uh, Xenophobe, Ninja Golf, Planet Smashers, Scrapyard Dog, <laughs> Karateka, Karateka, whatever. Touchdown Football, which I believe should knock $20 off the lot, actually. <laughs> uh, let's see, Cracks, Basket Brawl, Matt Mania Challenge, they pretty much, every, it, it looks like it's almost the entire 7800 collection that was made by Atari, at least. I don't see Rampage on here. I don't see Tank Plus or any of those other, or Tank Tank Command, not Tank Plus, geez, Tank Plus, never mind. <laughs> Midnight Mutants. Of course, there are a lot of common ones here. Pole Position 2, Ms. Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, uh, Donkey Kong Jr., Xevious, Galaga Joust, Tower Toppler, which I really wish I'd never played in a 7800. But wow, oh my lord. If that would have happened just three days prior, oh man. But yeah, they're moving to 4850 North Harlem Avenue in Harwood Heights. And interesting feature of Norwich and Harwood Heights, those two towns put together, they are surrounded by the city of Chicago. Like you cannot get to Norwich or Harwood Heights without going through Chicago unless you're starting from either Norwich or Harwood Heights. That's a fun fact that I learned about 20 years ago, actually. But hey, check them out if you're in the area. Uh, one thing I got to say about video games then and now is the prices are really good there. They border from cheap to reasonable. In fact, uh, Sean Kelly was at Midwest Gaming Classic in April 2017. I didn't realize that it was his store being represented there because I was looking through the tables and I heard people say, oh, yeah, the prices of uh, Atari stuff, prices are outrageous. And I did see a lot of vendors with pretty high prices on Atari stuff. But then I come across this table and I'm seeing a couple of uh, complete boxed games that you just don't see a lot of. And I saw the prices were really low. And then I look up and there's Sean Kelly standing. I was like, oh, okay, that's why your prices are so cheap compared to everybody else. It, they're definitely worth a visit. Uh, I believe Andy Ryerson was there recently and got, uh, got an Odyssey 2 there. And he was really happy with it. But hey, check them out. I am voluntarily giving this information out. Nobody there asked me to advertise there. I just wanted to share that news and give them a little plug because, hey, that's where I went when I first got my 7800. I went there to build up my collection a little bit. So let's talk about some Atari stuff, specifically Worm. And uh, Worm is what we call kind of a snake-style game. So let's talk about... The history, the evolution of snake-style video games. He left the road right here. Watch out for snakes. The first of the snake variety of games was the arcade game Blockade, put out by Gremlin in October 1976. And you probably remember I mentioned this briefly a couple of episodes ago. In Blockade, your character essentially draws a line on the screen, as does your opponent. The goal is to avoid colliding with anything be it the outer wall, your opponent, yourself, whatever. And the winner was whoever lasted longer. The game is over after one player gets six wins. The player's control consisted of four directional buttons on the control panel. Another company, Meadows Games of Sunnyvale, California, and uh, yeah, that is one of Atari's rivals in case you couldn't tell by the Sunnyvale part, they put out a clone of Blockade. They put out their own Blockade in 1977. Blockade was copied on several home video game and computer systems under various different titles. There was Surround on the Atari 2600, Snafu on the Intellivision, Checkmate on the Bally Astrocade, Hustle on the Texas Instruments 994A, and Worm on the Trash 80, Apple II, and Commodore Pet. The Blockade concept was also a mini-game in the Midway arcade game Tron from 1982, of course, the Light Cycles game which, of course, based on the movie, which I have not seen to this day, I should add. I do plan to remedy that, by the way, for better or for worse. But uh, having said that, <laughs> perhaps one of the more famous arcade variations on the concept is Nibbler, released by the Rockola Manufacturing Corporation of Chicago in 1992. In Nibbler, you use a joystick to control a snake who must navigate around a series of 32 mazes and collect flashing food items. As the Nibbler eats, he gets longer. Um, yeah, there's another one for you, uh, Andy and Tim. Uh, you're welcome. The only way you can lose a life in that game is for the snake to collide into himself. Even colliding into walls doesn't hurt him. He just turns. 
And in fact, that was one of the reasons Nibbler was made because one of the designers wanted to come up with a game in which there wasn't any kind of violence whatsoever. And there isn't the only way you could die is basically colliding into yourself. But anyway, you get an extra snake for every four mazes you complete and the scoring increases with each maze you clear. And uh, one of Nibbler's claims to fame is that it was the first known arcade game to feature nine digits available for your score, meaning that you would actually have to score a billion points, yes, billion with a B, to roll the score back to zero. The first person known to score a billion on Nibbler, or any video game really, was Tim McVeigh of Iowa, who lived and uh, still lives near Otumwa, the former location of the Twin Galaxies arcade. And there is an excellent documentary about Tim called Man vs. Snake, The Long and Twisted Tale of Nibbler. came out last year. Highly, highly recommend it. Great viewing, very fascinating, and just an overall fun movie. Now, going back to 1982, that year there was another variation on the blockade concept, and it was called Snake Bite, B-Y-T-E, and that was released by Sirius Software for the Apple II computer. In Snake Bite, it's actually a little bit closer to what the Atari 7800 worm is than what Nibbler is. You control a snake who has to eat 10 apples to clear the level, and there are 28 levels. If you take too long to clear the apples, three extra apples appear. Every time the snake eats an apple, the snake gets longer. The snake loses a life when colliding with a fence, a wall, or itself. You get three lives and one extra life for exiting the level after clearing it. And of course, the snake style of game is pretty ubiquitous. You could find that kind of game in the 1991 title Nibbles, which was a sample program included with QBasic for MS-DOS. There was also... Rattler Race on the Microsoft Entertainment Pack in 1992. And uh, what's unique about that is it threw in some enemy snakes into the gameplay. And in 2016, there was a website launched called Slither.io, which is a massively multiplayer online snake game. And uh, I played that. I never heard of it until I researched this episode. And um, let me tell you this. Please, 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 please do not play it at work or else you will not get anything done. Thankfully, I've discovered this at home. <laughs> but yeah, you will be so addicted to it. Uh, you're playing against other snakes and uh, wow, it's it's a lot of fun. What happens is your snake is continually moving and you use the left and right cursor keys on your keyboard to kind of uh, change direction on the snake and uh, you use the up cursor key to accelerate the snake. And you can actually get slither.io as a phone app as well. And you can customize how your snake looks and everything. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty freaking addicting game. Again, please don't do it at work unless you literally have no work to do and you're just passing time until the day ends. But um, anyway, anybody who's ever owned a Nokia cell phone can tell you about playing the built-in snake game to pass boring periods of time. To this day, Nokia cell phones come with a version of Snake. In fact, the Museum of Modern Art in New York City on November 29, 2012, announced that the curators wanted to add the Nokia Snake game to its 40-game collection sometime in the future. Whether they have done that or not, well, I've been unable slash perhaps too lazy to find out for sure. So, yeah, the snake concept is pretty popular, of course, and uh, so popular that it sparked the development of Worm. In fact, let's talk about the history of the development of Worm. There's a new sound, the newest sound around, the strangest sound that you have ever heard. Not like a wild boar or a jungle lion's roar. It isn't like the cry of any bird. But there's a new sound, it's deep down in the ground. And everyone who listens to it squirms because it's new, new sound. So deep down in the ground is the sound that's made by worms. Repeating what I said before because I like saying the same thing twice, Worm was programmed by Mark Ball, better known as Groovy Bee on Atari Age, using his 7800C development system. I'd love to take a look at that, by the way. Uh, I'll have to see if I can find any more about that. But anyway, the game was first announced on February 2nd, 2010, when he posted a message about it featuring seven screenshots. At this point, it was just the basic game plus the following features. 
There was slow, normal, fast, and turbo player speed. There were short, normal, and long worm lengths. All this was configurable, by the way, and you can also configure the game so that you need to eat either some or 50%, most or 75%, or all of the flowers in the garden to advance. That's the variation of the game that this is. It's your, it takes place in a garden. You have to eat a certain number of flowers. The left difficulty switch would toggle two extra lives. The right difficulty switch would toggle 10 extra mushrooms. And you have to avoid the mushrooms, by the way. We'll get into the gameplay a little bit later. And the plan was to have 16 levels and an arcade mode in which you just keep playing the same level. Now, when Worm was being developed, there was another homebrew in the works called Vong, which was being done by Sean Sr. on Atari Age. And Vong was basically a vertical Pong game. And there were all kinds of issues during the development of it. Uh, I, I know that Sean wasn't the only person involved. I think uh, Wiki Columbus was also involved, and I think they just weren't happy with the overall result of it. And uh, long story short, this is being extremely terse, but uh, Vong was pretty much canceled. So for people who ordered Vong, their orders were replaced with Worm, partly because Sean figured that Worm was a much better game. There would be enough worm cartridges made to fulfill the Vong pre-orders plus an additional 25. Eventually, Wiki Columbus did finish Vong and he posted the finished ROM on October 15th, 2009. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, I don't think I'm really going to cover Vong in this podcast because, as a lot of other people said, well, it's it's vertical pong. That's all you need to know. <laughs> but uh, if anybody has any offense to that and does want this to be, give get a little bit more detail, reach out to me. Anyway, going back to Worm, on February 16th, Mark had posted an update. There were eight levels in the game now. There was now title music, but no title screen, really. And there were some bugs that were fixed. But on February 20th, the first ROM was posted. Atari Age user Hammer25 found a bug, though. In easy mode, eating all the flowers didn't advance the level. Three days later, February 23rd, there was another new ROM posted. There was now a title page where they could fit the title music. There was a game over sound. There was new level completion animation and level completion sounds. At this point, when you start a new level, the worm is actually sleeping. There's actually a sleeping worm animation, and uh, that way it wouldn't just start immediately without you giving a second to prepare. What you had to do was actually wake up the worm by moving the joystick. And before this ROM release, there was actually save key support. The save key being that little thing you stick in the uh, number two joystick port, and it would save your high score. Well, support for that was taken out because it was too buggy. The next day, there was another new ROM, and one change that happened in here is that the worm was now no longer able to double back onto itself, which is actually pretty cool. Originally, it was possible for the worm to move right, and you could move the joystick left, and the worm would basically back up on itself and die. That was taken out, much to many people's delight. Now what happens is the directions are limited. If the worm is moving left or right, the only direction changes that will register are up and down. If the worm is moving up or down, the only directional changes that will register are left and right. Save key support was fixed and added back in. High score initials are now remembered between games, but somehow not when powering off and on, so obviously there would have to be some more save key stuff work done. Different Atari Age users suggested adding more moving objects and especially a bonus timer. Mark said he'd see what he could do after he finished what he wanted to add to the game because he was getting low on space. He was using a 16K ROM. He would perhaps entertain the thought of a version 2 of Worm that would use a 32K ROM and ergo would have more space. But Mark suggested this as kind of a compromise, perhaps putting four randomly placed apples at the start of the level. If you eat an apple within 20 seconds, you get a 100-point bonus. After 20 seconds, the apples would turn brown. And if you eat the brown apples, you would get 50 points each, and they would stay brown for 20 to 30 seconds. After 30 seconds, the apple would turn gray, and you'd only get 10 points each, or maybe even then... Maybe even then, you'd probably want to avoid them because they might be deadly. 
Mark didn't like the idea of a timed level, though, because the elements in the garden are generated randomly, which means that would take away, really, the necessity for completing the level within a certain time because, hey, you already have a challenge. Meanwhile, Mark actually went outside of the development thread in Atari Age and posted a plea in the General 7800 forum for people to test the game. On February 26th, there was another new ROM, and this time it was considered a release candidate. At this point, the save key support was fully working after he fixed a few bugs. There's now an extra life every 10,000 points. The initial entry on the high score table now had a redesigned cursor that made it easier to see the letters when you enter your initials. There are more sound effects. The mushrooms have a brighter color, making them easier to distinguish. And the bonus apples were now added. They were 100 points each. After 8 seconds, though, the apples would flash red and orange. And then they'd change to solid orange. When they were solid orange, they were 50 points each. And then after the next 8 seconds, they would flash orange and yellow. Solid yellow apples were worth 10 points each. And of course, the worm grows longer as you eat them. On March 1st, Sean announced that orders for worm cartridges would be taken starting Wednesday, March 3rd, to be shipped the following week. The price was $32 shipped to the United States or Canada, $35 shipped anywhere else. The next day, March 2nd, there was a new ROM posted. What were the changes? Well, at this point, when you enter your initials in the high score table, you could also use the digits 0 through 9 in your initials, which I guess was a feature requested by Atari Age user SH3RG. There were a few more bug fixes and code optimizations. And uh, one thing that kept kind of plaguing Mark, though, in the development was that uh, Gambler172, Walter, uh, he found that there was some kind of a color shadowing bug and uh, at this point, though, it appeared to be a lot less of a problem, if not completely gone. But regardless, it was a bug that Mark couldn't even reproduce. On March 3rd, as Sean had promised, he started taking orders for Worm. And uh, the orders sold out the next day. On March 7th, there was a new, hopefully final ROM. Uh, for one thing, it removed the word beta from the title page, and it added Atari Age user Mord's initials and high score to the high score table as one of the preset scores to beat. On March 19th, the first 30 cartridges shipped. The remaining cartridges were delayed due to faulty inverters. Most of the rest of the cartridges shipped on March 24th, with the three remaining to be shipped on the 26th. There you have it, the history, the cradle to grave of Worm. The game is now available on the Atari Age store. I don't know when it was released, but the earliest review is from June 21st, 2011. And speaking of reviews, I have to read the most recent review on it. Um, it's from Funkmaster V, who's contributed feedback to this podcast before. And it was from July 17th, 2017. The review says, uh, the game, this game is much better than the programmer's effort, Wasp. It's basically a take on the old flip phone snake with a few variants. I would suggest naming games after cool animals from now on, like Panther, or Sex Panther, or Black Jaguar, you know? <sighs> uh, very uh, very uh, interesting thought there, uh, Funkmaster V. <laughs> but uh, I just thought I'd share that with you. So yeah, you can get Worm in the Atari Age store, and it says Standard Edition on the cartridge, and that's the one I have. I'm not sure what other editions there may have been. But anyway, let's talk about the actual game itself. what i should probably talk about the actual game worm i talked about the dev history gave a little bit of uh, explanation behind the snake concept might as well talk about the actual game well in that original post that uh, mark had made in the development thread he actually gave the instructions and the instructions are and i quote help brian the worm avoid the mushrooms and eat the flowers to escape from the garden if you eat the mushrooms, bump into a wall, or bite yourself, you'll lose a life. Every time you eat a flower, you get a little longer until you've eaten your fill. Both the flowers and the mushrooms are placed in the gardens randomly. As you progress through the game, you start each level longer than the last, with more flowers to eat and mushrooms to avoid. After a certain number of levels, you'll begin to get faster, too. And um, really, that description says it all. The garden is a brick-enclosed garden. 
It's a really cool brick wall design, I think. It looks really nice. At the very first level, it's basically just one giant rectangle. It's a horizontally scrolling game. So as you move across the garden, you'll see the garden scroll to your left, to your right, whatever. And as you get through later levels, you're going to see that there are suddenly more walls in the garden that you're going to have to avoid. Remember that sleeping animation I talked about? And yeah, that's exactly what happens. When you start the game, Brian is asleep. You know that Brian is asleep because there are like little animated Zs emanating from his head. I never understood that, why Z is always kind of the universal cartoon expression of snoring. Oh, I'll have to ask Kevin Zerb to answer that on uh, Please Stand By sometime. Hmm. But anyway, as I was saying, um, depending on what you choose in the options, you can have a short body, a normal body, or a long body. If you choose short body, Brian starts with five segments. Normal body has eight segments. Long body starts with 11 segments. And as the original plan was, you can choose to eat some, most, or all of the flowers. If you choose the some option, then you have to eat half the flowers in the garden. If you choose most, you have to eat 75% of the flowers. And of course, if you eat all, you have to eat all of them. You have a tracker at the bottom of the screen telling you how many flowers are left that you must consume to end the level. Uh, despite the description that Mark posted, you don't really have to exit the garden. The level simply ends when you've eaten all the flowers that you have to eat. You get 25 points every time you eat a flower, and the bonus apples are there. If you eat an apple while the apples are red, you get 100 points, 50 points if they're orange, 25 points if they're yellow. And of course, you get an extra life every 10,000 points. And a little hint, there's an Easter egg in this game that uh, I talk about in the segment after the closing theme. Uh, if I strongly suggest you kind of use that Easter egg to get some practice. It's really helpful. And uh, one other user in the development thread, I forgot who, I apologize if you're listening and I failed to mention you, but one user on Atari Age in the development thread suggested that you start with a fast speed just to uh, get a feel for the game and then go back to normal speed and it'll be a lot easier to control. And yeah, the control is kind of hard in this game. It's really hard to make really tight turns. It's possible. It's just very hard. You have to have your timing down. I like to talk about high scores when I talk about games and there's not really a lot out there for Worm. The only thing I could see for high scores was that there was a mini high score contest that was run during February and March 2010 on Atari Age. And the high score, using the prescribed settings of normal speed, normal body, and eat most, the high score was moored with 23,275. And that score is built in on the high score table in the game. And by the way, when you get to the high score table, you can enter your initials. There are three slots for your initials, and your initials can include letters, numbers, a space, a period, a question mark, or an exclamation point. That is the game worm itself. The cartridge, the front label kind of looks like a standard Atari 7800 cartridge with a grayish silverish background color with Atari 7800 video game cartridge at the top and 7800 in dark red lettering. The end label looks a little bit more custom. It's a gray background with the title Worm in big dark red letters and Atari 7800 Pro System in black letters right below that. And the font looks like it's a variation of the copper plate, Cooper Black, Copperfield, whatever you want to call it, that kind of font. It looks kind of like that, but not quite. The front label, by the way, also says standard edition. I don't know if there's another edition that was out some point, maybe for people who bought this straight from Mark before it went to the Atari Age store. And it also says game copyright 2010 Mark Ball. There was not a manual, at least not when I bought this. Uh, if there is a manual out there and someone has a copy, if you could let me know if there is such a thing. And even better, if you can send a PDF and I'll be happy to post it. <laughs> if, um, I guess I sh should ask permission before I do that though. And, uh, Hey, what more can I say? That is worm. I got to offer my own opinion. I suppose I really do like this game. It is very addicting. It's very challenging and it's hard to put down because you want to keep doing more and more and more. The animation is really nice. 
One thing I don't understand, the cartridge, the picture on the cartridge, Brian is green, but in the game, Brian is pink. Brian turns green when he collides, though, and he's about to die. But I don't think that's the case on the label. He doesn't look like he's about to die. In fact, he has kind of a smile on his face. So I don't know. What I love about the animation, I don't know if this is intentional or just kind of a side effect of how the colors look, but what I love about the animation when he dies is he kind of gets this angry look in his face. <laughs> I, I like that. Uh, one thing I do have a problem with, though, is that when the apples start to turn different colors, they almost blend in with the mushroom. So it's a little bit hard to tell an apple from a mushroom once it's not red. But it could just be my TV. I don't know. But I really enjoy the game a lot. I highly recommend it. Go to the Atari Age store, buy a copy. Very fun game. Very nice, especially if you like the snake slash nibbler concept of games. But that's all I have to say. Let's hear what others have to say. As is my usual practice, I asked for feedback on Worm. And on Atari Age, there is a response from Gambler172. What I like about Gambler172 is that what he says about games, very, very short, yet he kind of gets the message across just with uh, one line, and he doesn't disappoint this time. He says, Worm is a nice game, not really top, but worth to play. <laughs> Thanks so much, Walter. I appreciate that. Save 2600, haven't heard from him in a while. He commented on Worm, had this for a while and really wanted to like the game, but the controls killed it for me. A shame it was never improved. That's true. He was going to put out a version two, wasn't, wasn't he? Uh, I don't know. I never had a problem with the controls myself, but hey, um, may, I don't know. Maybe it's because I, I use a different controller. I, I use like my Ed Ladin controller usually. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. But uh, for me, the problem with Worm is just that my reaction time is a little bit too hyper in that game. <laughs> and uh, Save 2600 also had a couple of things to say about previous games here. So I'll get to that. For Astro Blaster, he says, another top-notch effort by Pac-Man Plus. Early arcade space shooting game that's still fun to play when you're in the mood for something other than Space Invaders or Galaxian. And yeah, I kind of I kind of agree with that. It is a it's a little bit different. And uh, I never liked Galaxian. I don't think I ever will like Galaxian because to me, all you're doing is just shooting things for no reason other than to shoot things. Space Invaders, I always liked. I mean, yeah, you're just shooting at things, but at least you have a purpose. Shoot things before they land. If they land, the game is over. You don't want them taking over the planet. So, hey, that's a pretty simple concept, and I like it. And uh, with Astro Blaster, you got the extra features. You got the zigzagging aliens, and you have to dock with a mothership. And that's really cool. That's really cool. And uh, Save2600 also has a comment about Santa Simon. He says... Not available in the Atari Age store, but did a search, and as the title suggests, looks like the old Simon memorization game, but with a Christmas theme. I'm sure it's cute, especially if it utilizes a pokey chip, but not the kind of game I'd bother to play. Suspect kids might get a bigger kick out of it. Yeah, I can, okay, yeah, I can totally see what you're saying there. And people like you and me who've been playing these games for a while, we're adults, well, although some people might argue about that with me, but uh, people our age probably not going to get a lot of replay value out of Santa Simon. Look, we'll play a few rounds and put it down, but I can totally see little kids getting into it, especially because, Hey, what was the big toy in the early eighties? Simon. And I had a pocket Simon and I did play that a lot. So, uh, and yeah, there's no pokey chip in the game. It's digitized sound, but it's still played through the Tia chip. And that just blows my mind. But, uh, hey, thank you so much for your comments on that uh, Save 2600. And something I was really excited to see. Uh, when I asked for feedback on Worm, I accidentally put the wrong deadline on my posts on Atari.io and Atari Age. I said the deadline for Worm would be Wednesday, December 18th. Well, December 18th is not a Wednesday. It's a Monday. And what I meant to say was December 27th. But then I realized, wait a minute. I don't know what my recording situation is going to be that week. I might not have a chance to record. So I updated my posts on Atari.io and Atari Age, and I was going to actually email TrekMD and say, look, you send a submission to my show was like all the time. Is there any chance you could send yours early? And I kind of felt bad thinking about that. 
And literally, as I was thinking about that, what happens? I get an email from Trek MD with his worm feedback. And I was so excited to see that. And the reason he did that was because he was confused about the, uh, the deadline I posted. He's like, you posted a non-existent date for the deadline. <laughs> so I apologize. But thank you so much. And here's what Trek MD says. He says, greetings, Sean. I hope this finds you well and that you're ready for the new year. 2018. Here we are 18 years into the new century, and I clearly remember the great Y2K scare. Talk about a lot of to-do about nothing. Well, I sure hope 2018 is a great year and one full of 7,800 homebrews. Now, how about I get started talking about today's game, Worm? The snake game concept is something that started all the way back in the 70s and showed up in the arcades with various implementations. There are two main variants of this game formula. A two-player version where one player tries to get the other to run into an existing trail, and a one-player version where the player eats objects with the head of the snake resulting in an ever-growing snake body that makes controlling movement much harder. Surround on the 2600 is an example of the first formula, while Worm on the 7800 is an example of the second formula. Here you play the role of a worm called Brian, who must move through a garden in order to eat flowers while avoiding mushrooms as well as walls and his own body. Eating a flower makes Brian's body longer, and this continues to happen until you die. The flowers and mushrooms appear in random order each time the game starts, so there's no pattern to the movement. As the game advances, Brian's body is longer with each new level, and his speed also increases to raise the difficulty. A menu included before the actual game starts lets the player choose the speed of the worm, slow, normal, fast, or turbo, the length of the worm, short, normal, long, and the flowers to be eaten, some, most, or all. The option buttons can also be used to change the number of lives, on the left, or to add 10 mushrooms to the playing field, to the right. Worm has nice graphics, good sound effects, and addicting action that will have you trying this over and over in order to beat your score. Eugenio. Thank you, Eugenio. That was awesome feedback as usual. Well, I just really love seeing the different types of feedback. Like, I love Gambler172's feedback because it's just one line. I love TrekMD's feedback because it's always very detailed and tells you everything you need to know about the game. It's like, man, why, why don't I just save myself some time, just read his email and just have that as the podcast? That's it. Bam, done. But <laughs> there is one thing I have to address in TrekMD's email, and that's when he talked about the great Y2K scare. And he says, talk about a lot of to-do about nothing. Well, there is a reason that it was about nothing, and I need to address this because it kind of uh, I can kind of uh, personally relate to it. The reason that it seemed to be all this big hype and then nothing happened, the reason nothing happened was because people worked their butts off for months, if not years, to make sure that nothing happened. It's because of hardworking software engineers, hardware engineers. That's why I, th I think the only real thing that happened was a video store like in Iowa or something wasn't Y2K compliant. And suddenly one of their customers had a $126 uh, overdue f fee or something. <laughs> but yeah, it's not because nothing happened because nothing was going to happen. It's because nothing happened because there were people who put in a lot of overtime to make sure that nothing happened. Like my wife could probably tell you about her coworkers at AT&T who were in charge of making sure that things didn't happen. And uh, her aunt, her aunt uh, retired from uh, State Street Bank in Boston, and she was talking about how they had their Y2K compliance already taken care of and finished and tested a good year and a half before 2000 happened. And of course, people were all scared about that. Say, oh, what happens if uh, the Y2K thing happens and suddenly my balance is depleted? There's nothing in my account. And her answer was, banks keep backups of everything. All we got to do is restore backups. <laughs> but yeah, Y2K, the reason that Y2K wasn't the disaster and nothing happened was because, again, there were people whose butts were on the line if something did happen and they made sure that nothing was going to happen. And of course, back then I was a diehard Amiga user. I was so devoted to the Amiga platform. That was my one and only computer. And I was so smug about that because 
the Amiga was already Y2K compliant. It wasn't going to have any problems until 2078, I believe. So, of course, I was saying, well, geez, I have an Amiga and it's not going to be a problem. So, why is that the only part of Trek MD's email that I'm commenting on? Well, because really nothing more needs to be said. What he talked about with um, Worm and the Snake genre of video games he said what needed to be said there's no further comment necessary i think it was great so thanks again eugenio always great to hear from you and always great to hear from the rest of you always feel free to drop me a line about what we're covering here what we're covering again what why do i keep saying we uh, there's only one of me here but anyway feel free to drop me a line anytime about the games it's uh homebrew78 at fab4it.com And so ends episode 27 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. Hope you enjoyed uh, what I have to say. Hope you enjoy Worm. And right now I am going to enjoy thanking the following people for supporting this podcast financially. Thank you, Kyle Etter. Thank you, Jimmy G. Thank you, Richard Grounds and Richard Valdez and Ed Ladin Controllers and Gray Defender. I really appreciate the support. If you would like to support this podcast monetarily as well, you can go to patreon.com slash homebrew78. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. Meanwhile, you can reach out to me over email at homebrew78 at fab4it.com. And fab4it is spelled F-A-B, the number four, I-T. You can access the show notes page at homebrew78.fab4it.com on the web. Twitter handle is homebrew78. YouTube channel is homebrew7800. And there's also a Facebook page for the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. And so for episode 28, let's talk about a uh, Bob DeCrescenzo title. Let's talk about Astro Fighter. Astro Fighter. Oh, you know what? I should also thank uh, some people for helping this podcast actually happen in the past year. Thank you to Harry Dodgson for the help with the Combat 1990 episode. Uh, that episode would not have been possible without some wonderful insight that Harry was able to give me. And also thanks to Ferg for his help with that episode. Gave me a really amazing uh, performance. Thank you so much, Ferg. On speaking of Ferg, he gave me some advice before this podcast launched. I talked to a bunch of people about doing this podcast before it launched, and my plan was always to launch this exactly two weeks after the original Atari 7800 Game by Game podcast had its final episode, which, by the way, was my favorite episode of that podcast. It was awesome. But uh, Ferg had told me, you don't want to launch the podcast then. Why? Well, because it was late December. It was around Christmas time. And I totally agreed with him that it's a terrible time to launch a podcast, but uh, it was very good advice that I just plain did not take. I just wanted to start the podcast. I just wanted to get it going. So there was basically a seamless transition into another 7,800 podcast, whether that was good or bad. I don't know, but I absolutely agree that late December is not a good time to launch a podcast. I just didn't want to wait any further. <laughs> and thank you to Jimmy G for his various help over the past year with this podcast. Thanks to Michael Tomlinson at Good Deal Games for offering a really cool book with a discount for mentioning this podcast. I don't know if that discount is still good. Uh, Thanks, of course, to Bob DiCrescenzo for his assistance as well, for giving me some valuable information about his various games, and also for being just an all-around nice guy, which is the important thing right there. And I also thank Phil, the No Swear Gamer, not only for his blessing for doing this podcast, but also for helping me out with uh, an episode or two this past year. Thank you so much, Phil. And if you're listening to this, thank you. I do appreciate you listening the past year. And uh, I'm not sure if this podcast is going to take up the entire next year as it did this year, because, well, we're running out of games. I only have a few left, really, and uh, ev and um, I'm probably going to fill it out with some abandonware homebrews as well. 
So uh, we'll see how that happens. Hopefully there will be some new homebrews out this year that will prolong the podcast or else this podcast will lay dormant until someone starts developing again. So that's what I had to say there. Well, hopefully we're going to have a lot of fun along the way, whatever happens. That's the important part. And of course, the other important part is that you give these hardworking homebrew developers the support that they deserve. And thank you all for the support you've given me. I hope 2017 was better for you than 2016 was, and I hope that 2018 is better for you than 2017 was. Happy New Year, everybody. And hey, let's end 2017, or uh, if I'm late with this episode, let's begin 2018 with an Easter egg. There is an Easter egg in Worm. How do you activate it? Well, you enter B-U-Z, Buzz, as your initials in the high score table to get 30 lives every time you start the game after that. And of course, it resets if you um, turn off your console. Almost two years went by after the release of Worm before Mark Ball posted this on Atari Age because nobody found it. However, just be warned, it might work only on the actual cartridge. You might not be able to get it to work under emulation. That was not intentional by any means. It's just that uh, Mark might not have added that to the ROM until right before he burned the cartridges. But uh, if you can get that to work in an emulation, great. If not, that wasn't the intention. But anyway, here you go. Happy Easter.